Good evening and welcome to the Apple Store Regent Street in London. Please welcome tonight's guest, Ed Catmull, with guest moderator from Empire Magazine, Chris Hewitt. This man is one of the reasons why I'm wearing a Pixar t-shirt, which is maybe a little kiss-ass, but uh, I thought I'd give it a go anyway. Uh, hello, Ed. Welcome. Welcome to London. How are you feeling? Thank you. I'm feeling good. And I actually haven't seen that t-shirt before. Oh, you so. seen this one? I've seen the lamp, but I haven't seen that t-shirt. Okay. So. I thought you might have had one at least. No? No, not that one. Okay, interesting. Um, so you've written a, a book, Ed, called Creativity, Inc., which is uh, partially about the history of Pixar, but also partially about your own management uh, techniques. Why did you write this book now? Well, um, uh, having spent uh, 20 years on one dream of, of coming up with the first animated film, <clears throat> then another 10 years trying to uh, keep Disney or keep Pixar on track, and then the next eight years trying to uh, uh, turn Disney around. Yeah, uh, there were a lot of principles that we worked out, and we we just thought through a lot of things. And it was clear that after we changed Disney, that uh, a, a lot of the ideas, if not most of them, uh, also translate into other environments. And uh, I I wanted to be able to talk about them and. Mm -hmm say what we were doing that was different. Okay. Uh, and what was different about what you were doing? Uh, what I was trying to capture was, um, it came from an experience of while we were building Pixar and while we were failing as a company. So Pixar initially failed. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> we were fortunate in that we had Steve Jobs and, and uh, uh, John Lasseter. Um, and that we had some remarkable people there. But initially, we just kept making mistakes. None of us knew what we were doing. Um, but we finally got our, our chance, and it, which led to Toy Story. But along the way, uh, I had friends in other companies, other Silicon Valley companies and friends down at, at Disney. And there was this phenomenon that was happening that you saw over and over again, and that was you get a really amazing group of people together, um, engineers or artists, and they do some phenomenal work. They'd be very successful. Um, and then when they were very successful, a lot of them would do something really stupid. <laughs> and they'd go <laughs> off the rails. Right. Now, this still happens. Yeah. <clears throat> so the question I had at the time was, if we're ever successful, will we also do something stupid? So that was just the question in the back of my mind. And uh, when we finally got our chance to make Toy Story, and we finished the film, and we went public, and we started to move on to our next movie, which is A Bug's Life, we found that there was one group in there who was very unhappy. So this kind of a shock to the system because I felt like we had a very open environment. We were very careful about keeping it open. Um, the artists and the technical people um, were, were good friends with each other. They socialized, they intermarried. Um, it was just a good feeling in the group. But the production people that we had brought in from Hollywood were unhappy at the end of the film. And I didn't know it through the whole making of the film. So I asked them afterwards what the problem was, why they were unhappy. 
And they said they, they felt like second-class citizens and that um, uh, they weren't really respected. So this caught me off guard because we just had this very successful film. I went to the other technical people and to the artists, and sure enough, they thought the production people were second-class citizens. Um, so there were two big questions that hit me at the time. The first one was, I thought I was on the lookout for this, and I had still missed it. The second one was, what was the problem they were complaining about? Was what, what was this issue that made the production people so upset that others felt that they were second class? Mm. And, and, and so I realized there were some deeper issues going on that were really hard to see. So I started down this, this path of trying to figure out what are the hidden problems that are getting in the way um, and why are they hidden? And in this case, our very success was enabling people to cover over problems. And I mean, to this day, I still think it's a phenomenon that, that success hides problems. But as we dug deeper and deeper as a group and we gained more experience, uh, our whole philosophy, the way we thought about things changed. And, and all of it led to a, just a, a way of looking at things which has enabled Pixar to deliver 14 uh, uh, hit films in a row mm. and turn Disney around. Yeah, I mean that must bring a lot, uh, with it a certain pressure though if you're delivering so many hit films in a row to keep on delivering and keep that snowball rolling. So how do you, how do you go about doing that? And, uh, well, well, initially it was kind of a joke. It was yeah. like you finish a film and then you say to the next director, tag, you're it. Um, but what it does is it creates an enormous amount of pressure on them. So we don't do anything to try to add to the pressure. What we have to do is to try to reduce the pressure on them because they're going to feel it. Uh, and there's an expectation, both internally and externally, about how, how good a film needs to be. So in, in light of those kind of pressures, how do you actually keep them calm? And, um, and it's not always easy. Sometimes you know, things will spin off the rails. We've had a major problem with every single one of our films, with the exception of one. Which was? Toy Story 3. Okay. So I got to tell you, where <clears throat> Toy Story 3 um, was um, one where they found the emotional core at the very first pitch of the film. So it was a matter of hanging on to that emotional core. Now, the film was still really hard to make because you have to earn the emotion that's at the end of the film. But you know what you're driving for. But I got a call once from Steve, and he was asking how things were going, and I said, uh, well, it's, it's kind of curious because we don't seem to have any major disaster on this film. And he said, well, you better be careful. That's when the, 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 the real danger starts to happen. <laughs> so I said, oh, I'm not worried about it because the next four films are disasters. <laughs> I mean, you, you mentioned in the book, uh, you even referred to Monsters University and Cars 2 as, and this is a quote from you, uh, costly misfires. Is that the way you perceived them before they came out or, 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 or have, has the, the success of those movies, because they were successful, has that somewhat alleviated the situation for you? Do you still look at those as difficult production processes for you? No, well, I, no I think it's important. There's a point I was trying to make there, and so um, I want to be very clear on that. Mm -hmm. um, because Monsters 
uh, University uh, did extremely well. Is that when you said Monster University? Monster University, yeah, and Cars 2. Yeah, and Cars 2 is actually our most successful uh, financial film mm. in, in our history. Um, now, what, what I'm referring to is that when we start our films, um, all of our films suck. <laughs> And, uh, and I don't mean that in a self-effacing way or being modest. What I mean is like they really suck. Um, so we have to go through an iterative process to make them better. Like John would say that these are the worst films you've ever seen. <laughs> and w what it means is we're able to put something up in a mock-up form. It's sort of like a beta version of a product. <laughs> and you see if it works. And it doesn't, so you change it. And you keep iterating and fixing and changing. So if the film doesn't work, then how do you judge the team? Mm. Because we can't judge it by the film because I just told you it doesn't work. Yeah. So the way you have to judge it is by how well the team works together. Do they laugh? Do they solve problems? Are they able to blow up ideas and rethink things? And when they do that, you end up in a great place. Um, and, and so that's the, I mean, it's one of the underlying principles is is the, is the film at the beginning is like an ugly baby, <laughs> and it needs protection. You don't protect it forever, yeah. but, but on the other hand, you do need to protect it. And the mindset for doing something at the beginning is a different mindset than when you're out finally promoting the film. Mm, absolutely. But, uh, but Pixar, as, you, as you've mentioned, I mean, a lot of uh, Pixar movies have had troubled production histories, and Pixar has never been afraid of stepping in and making changes in midstream, or or even very very close to release. There's the uh, the very famous story about Toy Story 2, very very close to release, being changed, scrapped almost entirely, and started from scratch. Um, how do you do something like that while at the same time fostering a, a a sense of creativity within your workforce? Well, the, uh, the the what it's based upon is a value is the is the quality of the film matters above everything else. So. If you think about the nature of problems, there are a gazillion little problems, and the people just take care of them. Then you've got middle-sized problems, and middle-sized problems are actually among the best um, because they help force through change and they alter the way you work. But sometimes you end up with a smoking heap of rubble on the floor, <laughs> and uh, it's just a mess. Now, you, you learn a lot from it, but the fact that you restart is actually an affirmation of the values. And, and we've had this throughout, but we never know when it's gonna happen. Mm -hmm. um, sometimes, it, and frequently it happens early, and we get clues and we can correct it. So a lot of the things went through problems, they got corrected midstream, and then you would never know it at the end because they're, they're, they really turned out great. Sure. Sometimes we do restarts. Mm. So uh, we had to do a fairly, well, we did a major restart on uh, Toy Story 2. Um, down at Disney, we did two major restarts. Mm -hmm. and, um, and then on a couple of recent films, fairly midway through, we made a big change mm -hmm. uh, to make it work. Okay. And sometimes they just go through evolutionary change. So my favorite one is Up. Mm -hmm. So <clears throat> the first version of Up... <coughs> Um, took place on a castle that was floating in the sky. 
and the people in the castle were at war with the people on the ground. And there was a king in the castle who had two sons, and the sons hated each other. And the sons, by accident, ended up down on the ground, wandering around in enemy territory. And in their wanderings, they came upon a, a large bird. This version didn't work. <laughs> the only thing left was the bird and the word up. So the second version, they came up with this prologue, where Carl and Ellie <clears throat> start as children, grow up through their whole lives until Ellie dies and Carl floats away in the balloon. Mm. That first prologue was 20 minutes long. The one that you saw in the movie was four and a half minutes long. But the 20-minute one was actually gold. So they, they, they went from gold to a diamond. <laughs> but after Carl floated away, he landed on a lost Russian dirigible. Well, that didn't work. <laughs> but they kept the prologue. So in the next version, uh, they landed on a tapui. And on the tapui was the bird. And the bird laid eggs. And if you ate the eggs, they keep you alive forever. Okay. And the reason Muntz was on the island was he was hunting the birds to get the eggs to stay alive. Okay. This is too complicated. We're not really <laughs> late in the game. So fairly late in the game, they get rid of the, of the eggs. And, uh, and in fact, only a few people noticed this. At the beginning of the movie, Carl's a little boy and Muntz is this late middle-aged man. At the end of the movie, they're about the same age. Well, that, it's because of the eggs, the, the now gone eggs. Yeah. It was too late to change them, but nobody cared anyway because it was the emotional <laughs> impact that worked. So the final film bore no resemblance to the first one. So what we were relying upon was the, the, the sense of the director to look for the emotion. Mm -hmm. that, that's Pete Docter. Every one of these films has a different director. They've got different mindset. They've got things they like that are different. Mm -hmm. And that's what we want. Mm. So uh, in terms of that original version of Up, is that now completely scrapped? The minute you think, oh, this isn't working, and how far do you get with it? Is it storyboards, or do you even get to a stage of animation with that before you scrap it? And then once you do scrap it, do you think, well, we're never going to go back to that well again. That's, that's done. Now, when actually, when you're trying things, it's like you're exploring a territory. You're uncovering a neighborhood. So you work on something, and this happens fairly frequently, and it just doesn't work. So you abandon it, and you move on to something else. And then you come up with this other cool idea. But now, that idea before, in conjunction with this, slightly modified, actually works really well. So they never forget anything. They just use it as part of starting the territory. And, and in fairness, on, on uh, uh, Toy Story 2, they'd actually explored a lot of territories. So when they came in at the last, they knew what not to do. Mm -hmm. So it, it, it isn't meant to be disrespectful of the first team. They just couldn't take it all the way through. Okay. So um, with the second iteration of Upland, you have the married life sequence with, uh, with Carl and Ellie and Ellie passing away in that sequence. Hands up here, anyone who hasn't cried to that sequence. If you haven't cried, you see, look at that, everyone's cried to that sequence at some point. Um, when the second iteration comes around, does it hit, does the emotional hit, impact hit you, and is that when you decide to stick with that? Well, as soon as we had that, we knew we had gold. And, and that's usually the case, is that as soon as you find something which actually 
gets to an emotion which connects with people. That's what you want to hang on to. Mm. So uh, and it, where films sometimes get stuck is they'll have somebody laugh at something and they will hang on to that. And hanging on to a laugh is not nearly as important as hanging on to other emotions. Mm. Because the laughter is easier to put in afterwards. So we try to get that arc and the, and the, uh, the, the, the motion in first, then come back in with the other things that re which really take it up a level. So emotion's always been the most important thing for Pixar, yes. beyond technology, beyond developing that, right. that technology? And, and, and we've understood that right from the beginning. Yeah. And, and John brought that in. And I have to say, when Toy Story came out, typically at most uh, the reviewers only had one line saying that it was a, um, a computer animation. But the important thing was is the technical people took a lot of pride in that. Because this wasn't about trying to put on a technical tour de force. It really was about telling a story. And when that happened, we knew we had succeeded. Absolutely. The book itself is, uh, is partially, as I said, a, a history of Pixar and how it came to be. But for people who don't maybe know the story, can you talk about how you, you got started uh, at Pixar? Because you, you wanted initially to be an animator way back in the day. Is it? That's, the, uh, that's the case. And then maybe didn't quite work out for you in that, re in that respect. Yeah, so I, I grew up, and the, the, the two iconic figures were, were Walt Disney and Albert Einstein. So um, I, I wanted to be an animator, and of course watched Disney World all the time, and I, I was pretty good at drawing. But when I got out of college, I had no idea how to become an animator, and there were no, no schools for it. So I switched over into physics, um, and got a, a degree in physics. Uh, and then I got a second degree in computer science, which is a new and emerging field. And in graduate school, um, it was the foundation school at the University of Utah for uh, computer graphics. Mm -hmm. And so and, and when I t first took that class, here we were making these pictures, which were really crude. They were all made out of polygons, and they were black and white. Um, but it, I felt like it was like being at the Easter egg hunt and I was at the front of the line, and they just cut the ribbon. <laughs> um, so it was just trying to discover what we could do to make these images look better. And by the time I got out of college, I had a goal, or got me my doctor's degree, the goal of making the first animated feature. And I thought at the time it would probably take 10 years, because there were a lot of things that still had to be worked out. Yeah. It didn't. It took 20. Um, but along the way, it was just this phenomenal journey of uh, five years in New York, working on a, in a, running the computer graphics lab at the New York Tech. Uh, then George hired me to bring technology into the film industry. This has been this George Lucas. Yeah, George course, Lucas. Yeah. I'm sorry. Uh, and uh, George was the only person in Hollywood who was willing to invest in technology for the film industry. This was just after Star Wars. Um, and I'd had this theory about how to manage at New York Tech because actually I didn't want to manage, I wanted to do the research. So I figured if I had hired a certain kind of person, then it would free me up to do the research. Well, about two thirds of my theories were uh, correct and about a third were a crock. <laughs> um, and w when I went to Lucasfilm, it was time to revisit. So we restructured and rethought about it but there was something interesting about how you get people to work together and what makes for an exciting environment and what are the barriers to creativity. Yeah. And I define creativity fairly broadly. It isn't just expression, but it's also problem solving. So it, for me, it, it applies in a lot of different areas in our lives. So at Lucasfilm, 
um, we had this phenomenal opportunity. We brought in people, and then we brought in John Lasseter as an animator, um, and uh, had him direct some shorts, but it was our good luck that John really wasn't like anybody else. <laughs> in that not only was he a brilliant animator and storyteller, um, but he was uh, very open to the technology, and he was very open to having other people rise up. So his first hires were Andrew Stanton and Pete Docter, who themselves were remarkable. Um, but in 1986, um, we spun out of Lucasfilm, and Steve Jobs bought us. This is just after he left Apple. So, and uh, he had formed Next. Um, and then he liked uh, our values and what we wanted to do, so he bought into Pixar. So these were his two companies that he was running. Mm. And uh, that went then on for the next several years until we got uh, an opportunity with Disney. But at the, at the time when, uh, when Pixar began, uh, when Steve took Pixar on, you wanted to make animated films, you wanted to make feature films, but that wasn't Pixar's main business. I don't know if people know necessarily how Pixar actually began. We, when we were at Lucasfilm, we, we made a special purpose gra graphics computer that was used for um, compositing pi pictures together for live action films. And we also came up with techniques for medical imaging and, and uh, in the end decided we were gonna use it as the basis for the company and sell it as a product. So we were a hardware manufacturing company. So as we started, then I'm now the president of the company and I know nothing about being the president of the company. <laughs> we're manufacturing, we know nothing about manufacturing. <laughs> Steve has had experience with um, consumer products through Apple, but he knew, no knew nothing about high-end products. So we started a company where none of us knew what the hell we were doing. <laughs> and while that was very educational, I mean, I, I, I learned a phenomenal amount from trying to understand manufacturing and realized that in many environments that solving manufacturing actually is a creative problem. Mm. So that was educational for me. But the fact is we were failing as a company. And we went through a lot of things together. Uh, it was hard for Steve because Steve was supporting us. But by failing together and staying together, we also bonded. So when we actually got our chance with Disney to make Toy Story, we had a group that had been through a lot, we had each other's backs, and we, I think we were prepared to tackle the difficult problem of figuring out how to do the, the first computer animated film. Absolutely. There's, there's a great uh, story in the book about how uh, the Pixar image computer when you first started selling it, you priced it way too high. And at the very beginning of this, this chat, you said that uh, a lot of companies, you watched a lot of companies get very, very big, and then they would do something stupid. Now, did you get to something stupid out of the way early so you could actually move on and build your business from there? No, uh, actually what we learned was that there's something stupid going on all the time, and I just can't see it. Okay. And, and, and it actually took me a while to figure this out. I, I mean, I, I realized after this, uh, after Toy Story, that we had missed something. Um, but the, the natural thing to do in any environment like that is to say, well, okay, how do we get this right? You, you want to be efficient, you want to be um, uh, uh, timely, and you want to be on budget. So all, you have all those important issues that are going on. And we were struggling with making these films, and we, and, and we said there's got to be some way to make it so they're easier to make. We, like, we've learned enough lessons, we can figure out how to do it. 
finally we got to Finding Nemo, and Finding Nemo had a brilliant pitch. So it was nuanced, it was sophisticated, it was great storytelling, and we were really excited. Then we made the film, and we made just as many changes as we ever had. So then I thought, well, okay, um, we didn't get it right this time, but we still know what the goal is in terms of, of actually getting it right. But then slowly I realized that, you know, getting it more efficient and getting the processes right and, and all that stuff's important, we work on it, it just isn't the goal. The goal is excellence. And that these problems are always hidden. And, and as, as, I, as I looked at it more and more, I realized there's just a lot of stuff that I can't see. So at, at one level, uh, I, I realized that, that as I became the boss, that I very rarely saw bad behavior. Mm. So that didn't mean it wasn't happening. It just meant they wouldn't do it in front of me. Okay, well, if, 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 you, if you're not aware that it's being hidden, you might think, well, gee, everybody's behaving well. Yeah. Uh, or you take something like communication, like everybody should communicate well with each other. Well, duh. <laughs> <laughs> everybody says it all the time. It's like it's obviously true. The problem is the things that are obviously true don't affect behavior. And what we needed to do was to actually figure out how to do things in a better way. So I just started off with the assumption, okay, there are things that are going on that I can't see and I can't understand. They're, they're complex. But it's even worse than that. There are interconnections that we have between our jobs that, that make things difficult or obscure. Um, there, are, um, um, th there are things that don't exist yet. Like if you're making a film and you start off with it, it the film doesn't actually exist. It isn't like I'm uncovering it. Mm someone has to go through the process of creating it. And that means you are actually facing in a direction where there isn't anything. I mean, that's where the future is. I mean, it's one of those obvious things, but the future doesn't exist yet. So it's actually a fairly scary place to go. So a lot of people, given the scariness of the unknown in front of us, tend to want to fall back onto the things that are known to work from the past. So you copy yourself or you copy somebody else, mm. which sometimes works as a business. It just isn't original and it isn't where we want to be. Uh, so philosophically say, well, okay, we're going on in a, in a direction where there are a lot of unknown things and that's where we want to go. That is the direction. Mm. And, and it's the hard, mysterious direction. Uh, we've touched upon this a little bit, but um, in 2006, uh, when Disney bought Pixar and, and you and John uh, moved over and became uh, president of both Disney and Pixar Animation, Disney Animation and Pixar Animation, um, what were the Disney animation methodologies like at that time? And did the Pixar methodologies work on Disney as well? Or did you have to create almost two methods for working with two different studios? Well, uh, for me, this was an, uh, uh, a really fascinating uh, part of, of, of my life, and I know for John too, <clears throat> Disney back in the 90s had made four films that had a worldwide impact. There was Little Mermaid, Beauty and the Beast, Aladdin, and Lion King. Then they started to go downhill. Now, looking at it from my point of view, it looked to me like the process had taken over. That is, as the creatives had moved on to other areas, 
they took the people who are good at controlling the process and put them over the front end. And, but the creative part is fundamentally different than the part of uh, actually producing the movie. So by trying to uh, make that more methodical and apply those values to the front end, they essentially gutted it. So what you saw was the, the quality of the films going down and the value is they were working harder and harder to figure out how to make the process easier. Uh, whereas we'd reached the opposite conclusion, which was the process is always hard and you actually have to protect the front end from this, the, this big mass of, of people who produce the film. In fact, the terminology they used at, at Disney in, in, in those days was feed the beast. And, and it wasn't men, and I don't think of it in a derogatory term, but it's a large group of people who are creatively actually making the film. So it's exciting, has a lot of people, it's very costly, and it generates the revenue for the company. But it needs stuff to come in for them to work on. So the tendency is to, to, to make sure that stuff is coming in, and that's why they apply this, this set of values. Mm. But for us, the films, as I mentioned, suck to begin with. <laughs> so you can't apply the same things to them. You have to say, I've got to protect them. Yeah. So that's a different mindset. So th they weren't succeeding. So uh, Bob Iger, when he became chairman, called up Steve. And they formed an instant and deep bond with each other. I mean, it was a, a very good friendship that they had between each other. And, and all this led to Pixar being acquired by Disney. Uh, now, we put up mechanisms to protect the culture at Disney uh, because the people at, I mean, excuse me, protect the culture at Pixar because the people at Pixar were nervous that a big company would come in and change too many things. At Disney Animation, it was the opposite. They knew they weren't succeeding and they wanted us to come in. So there might have been some natural things to do there. One of them is you might have said, well, you'd be spread too thin, so you should shut down Disney Animation. Or another line of reasoning would be uh, that, that for efficiency of scale, you should combine the two studios. So John and I took a different approach. And that approach was, we're going to keep these two studios completely separate. They're not allowed to do any production work for each other whatsoever. And we're going to apply the principles and the philosophy to a different group of people who at that time were failing. So we explained the principles, and there were a lot of things having to do with the way that uh, our brain trust works, that is the way they think about the early development of the story, the way we thought about process, um, and the way we make it safe to fail and make mistakes. That is, those are all things that sound good when you talk about them, but they take a while for people to figure out because safety is something that can only be earned can't tell people to trust each other. You have to, to earn the trust. And it took around two to four years for everything to finally click and come together. Um, every film that we've made since we've been there, and there have been six films, have been critically well-reviewed. But it was at Tangled where they hit a huge financial success. Um, but they did it on their own. And it wasn't as if Pixar rescued them, mm. because Pixar couldn't do any work for them. So. <laughs> They made the changes. They changed in the culture. And then they did Wreck-It Ralph, which is a very different kind of film and very successful. And then 
um, just uh, within the last few weeks, Frozen uh, passed Toy Story 3 <laughs> to become the highest grossing animated film uh, in history for worldwide gross. So now actually for all films, live action and animated, it's the sixth highest grossing film in history. So here's the key takeaway. It's largely the same people who were there when they were failing. And my view is, and, is and, I, and I believe this very strongly, is that most people are creative, most people want to do well, and the issue is not how do you make them be more creative, it's how do we remove the barriers and the blocks. Mm -hmm. That the barriers and the blocks are systemic, they're hidden, they're hard to get at, but if we get rid of those blocks, we enable those people to become their better selves. Is there a sense of uh, competition as well, though, between the two studios, in a way? Uh, now that, uh, as you say, Frozen has overtaken Toy Story 3, does that make people at Pixar go, well, we want our crown back, naturally? Well, uh, I mean, you know, each one wants to do the best, but uh, uh, we worked really hard, and, and I think people take a lot of pride in this. First of all, they like it when somebody makes a good movie. That's true even at other studios. Um, and there are a lot of things to worry about and fret over rather than, than uh, uh, sort of a silly competition. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's I mean, really the attitude. And, and I will say that when, that when Frozen came out, that, that the crew there noted the number of comments they got from friends from Pixar. And likewise, when Pixar does well, they get the comments back and forth. So there's the natural thing, like everybody wants to be the best and so forth. But that's, that is not a, a, a negative rivalry. Uh, it's more like, it's true with our, our, our animation sessions, and you go in there and you see a good piece of work, then it inspires you to want to do better. Mm. So it's the healthy kind of, of, uh, of, of comparison. Fantastic. And uh, I'll ask you one last thing, and then I'll throw it open to you guys to ask Ed questions. Um, as a kid who grew up idolizing Walt Disney, what did it mean to you to be made president of Disney Animation? Well, I, uh, first of all, somebody like Walt Disney or Steve Jobs or John Lasseter, they're all incredibly unique individuals. So I've, I've never actually thought in, in terms of that. I, I, I'm excited about the opportunity to work with both Pixar and Disney. I'm proud of the things that have happened. Um, I'm usually most proud, and I, and I don't even know why this is. It's an emotional reaction, is that when we have a problem, and we frequently do, <laughs> that when we get together to discuss them, the, the tenor of the discussion is, is that the people in the room own the problem. So they don't look to John and me and say, what are you going to do? It's, it's like, what are we going to do? Because we need to make some changes. And, and it's, a, it's, a, it's a thing that comes up when there's a problem. So it's like it's when we have our problems and, and we get that great response is when I feel the greatest pride. Fantastic. Okay, if you have any questions for Ed, we have some right there in the middle. We have Rovi microphones going around, lots of hands going up. I see some over there as well. We'll start with this gentleman here in the uh, second row, and then we'll move to these guys in the front. He just passed the microphone. Oh, he's got it. Hello. Hi. Um, thanks very much for this talk. It's great. Um, I just wanted to ask a question. I'm a filmmaker, <clears throat> and I wanted to know what your thoughts on are about uh, Final Cut and uh, with your feature films. Uh, who should have them, the director, the producer, the executive producers, or the studio? 
Well, uh, in the world that we're in that we see, there are three different models for long-form entertainment. So you've got television where you've got these rooms and it's a group of people that stay together for a fairly long period of time as they make these series. And as you know, the quality recently on these series is, is, can be quite high. Um, then there is the model in Hollywood where it's more like a, a, a group comes together they're assembled for a film, and at the end of the film, they disband. Um, and then there is our model where the group of people all stay together, and they all have ownership in each other's films. Uh, and we have writers who actually have existed in all three models, and they comment on the difference between the models. Um, and the, the model that we have is the one that we developed, and we, we use it at Disney and at Pixar, and, and we and the people around it like it a lot. So under that model, uh, the director is the final word on the film, um, but there, there are, and I say this because we've got a, a, a collegial arrangement called the Brain Trust where they give notes to each other, and we intentionally make sure that that group has no authority over the director. Um, and in doing so, we're allowing the director to listen. The fact is most directors get lost in their movies. And when I say lost in the movie, that means they don't recognize it. So it's, it's getting comments from peers who've been through it that help them see things that they don't normally see. So we protect that kind of environment. Um, but we don't think in terms of Final Cut because we make our movies seven or eight times and we're iterating towards it. Um, if we find that the director loses the confidence of the crew, then we will make a change. So we'll do everything we can to keep that from happening, shoring them up and so forth. All this is behind the scenes, nobody sees it. But when you actually change the director, then it becomes visible. And it's difficult, because these are people who are very talented, and we wouldn't have put them in the position if we didn't think they were talented. But there's some things you don't know until you've got the position, because directing a film is extraordinarily hard, and it's not what most people think it is. Um, so we end up on converging it. So I never hear the term of like the right of final cut, because by the time we've got there, the director has directed the film. It's their passion that made it happen. Um, but if we do have something that is inappropriate, I mean, there are certain things that we would not want in, in a Disney or Pixar film, um, then we would say that we, that we wouldn't allow it in there. But it's not about, in terms of, we, we even use the term Final Cut. To us, Final Cut's the name of a product. <laughs> All right. It's, it's got to be their passion that comes through, and we're trying to help them to achieve that goal on the screen. Um, you mentioned the uh, the brain trust there, and, and again in the book you talk about how the, uh, the, the, the the famous Pixar brain trust changes, the, the content of the group changes. Who's in the brain trust right now? For example, with Brad Bird off doing Tomorrowland and Andrew Stanton's on Finding Dory. So this is there's a change. How big is the group now? Well, uh, it consists of the the directors yeah. and the the writers. Um, and some of the heads of story. And there are a few other people who are good at story. It changes over time. As the dynamics change, as the personalities change, then we're continually evolving it. 
but trying to hang on to this principle of how do you create an environment in which the smart people are able to tell the truth to each other and recognizing there are reasons why people sometimes aren't candid. They don't want to embarrass somebody, they don't want to embarrass themselves. Uh, or a director may send signals that they don't want to hear the truth. I mean, there are all sorts of things that can get in the way. So our view, our job is to protect that environment to make it safe to get at the truth. Fantastic. Uh, yes, please, right here in the front row. Uh, I have a question with regards to your your history in essence, how you came to where you are today. Um, you mentioned that you initially wanted to start out as an animator, um, but then sort of had to sort of take a detour because I, I suppose there were no sort of training skills or whatever available. Um, my questions with regards to my 16-year-old brother, actually, who is an animator and a graphic designer, um, but is trying to find sort of a way to get into the animation world. Um, we have checked out the Pixar website um, as a ways of trying to you know, work out what graduate scholarships and so on and so forth are around. Um, but we did notice that there's nothing that's on the undergraduate level. Um, so my question really is, um, on behalf of my younger brother and also all the young um, budding animators and graphic designers out there, um, where can they, I guess, access um, Pixar? Um, and if there isn't such tools available, is that something that you're looking to do in the future? Well, I mean, the question is how you actually get the kind of training and, and preparation. Um, and there are many good schools now, both on the technical and the artistic side, um, to train people. Um, the, I, I, but, the, the, but the way I look at it, because the, the technology keeps changing, is that um, my general recommendation is that it's good for everybody to go very deep in some area, like some expertise, but also to try to get a lot of breadth. That's what a good general education does. And um, I know it sounds like cause, you know, it's two different axes on the horizon because you can't do everything, but I think the experience of doing something really well is a great personal experience for somebody to have. But you don't want to be too narrow, so you actually want to know a lot of things, at least lightly. But, but, but have that experience of being really excellent at something. Uh, and as for where it is, there, there are schools around the world who do this now. Uh, there's a lot of good expertise out there. Thank you. Yes, please. Hi. Um, I really enjoy how creative some of your short films are. Um, and I wondered whether you could tell us a little bit about how the process of making those is different from a feature. And also, how do you decide uh, which features to, uh, to pair the short films with? Well, for the most part, they're just they're thought of independently. Um, we, uh, we usually pick people that we want to direct something, whether it's a short or a, or a feature-length film. Um, with the short films, uh, they can do something which is more experimental. And we love the experimental things. We don't make any money on the short films. Uh, it's purely a bonus. Uh, it's a signal inside that we, we do some things to where we don't make any money, and, and you, you actually want that signal sometimes. Um, uh, and then as far as they, they pair up, sometimes, I mean, the truth is it's just how they line up. So. If they're wildly different, we can say, oh, well, they'll enjoy the fact that it's counter-programming. <laughs> and if they do line up, it's like, well, that's nice because they fit with a similar theme. So the truth is, it's just <laughs> whenever they're done, <laughs> then we try to line them up with something. 
Um, my question is, <laughs> um, the good dinosaur, is it still an ugly baby? Because uh, it seems like a film I'd really like to see. Well, uh, so th that one is a restart. And uh, as I say, we've done restarts all along our history. But nobody ever paid attention in the past. But there is gold in there. So when you do a restart, it's hard. Um, but that's what we do. And it's not the last time we'll do a restart. The, the, uh, we've actually, at Pixar, we've, with one exception, we've completed every film we started. And the one we didn't complete, we were going to complete. And Pete Docter was going to complete it. But he said, I, I, you know, I've got a new take on it. I think it's going to be really good. But I have a better idea. And he pitched his better idea. And we thought it was better, too. So that's going to be Inside Out, which comes out next year. But there, there was, um, there's no Pixar movie this year, for example, in 2014. Right. That's correct. How tough was that uh, decision to take? Because I, I imagine there's a, a certain pressure to get some product out there and to, and to make sure the bottom line's okay. But by taking a year off, you're obviously not going to, uh, I guess, please certain investors. Or, but by pushing back, that's a, that's a big decision to take. Well, it, it, it was a tough decision. Uh, and, it, and it was hard. But the support we've had from Disney has always been incredible. They have never second-guessed us. They've never told us what to do or what films to make. And it's funny because sometimes if, if they don't like something about one of our films, they'll say, well, Disney made them do such and such, which and it just isn't true. Right? They have never done that. <laughs> we've taken great care to make sure that we own our successes and we own our failures. It's just that we try to keep our failures in-house. Uh, and so they have uh, given us full and complete support along the way. So it's kind of a gulp when you say, you know, we didn't make it with this one. And uh, they say, and it was actually very accepting. So, okay, I get it. But the, oh, the overall is that the films are great, and that's what you get as a result of being willing to pull uh, or, or to make a really tough decision at the end. And I take a lot of pride in that. It's like, okay, this is where we express our values. It, it's, you know, when the films come out, we love the fact that people want them, but we, or, or, or they enjoy them, that we affect culture in that way. But the, the, the exciting part where the adrenaline goes is when you get there and it's like, holy crap, we've got a problem here. <laughs> and then you do the right thing. There's, a, there's again an amazing story in the, uh, in the book about how Toy Story 2, not only had you to change directors midstream and change the focus of the film, but you are, you almost deleted it. Can you can you talk about tell people about how Toy Story Two was almost lost, and if that had happened, I guess Pixar would have been lost. Well, yeah. So, I, and, and and the point I was trying to make here, and, and and just so that people are clear, only the first four chapters are about the history, and the rest of it are about the ideas behind trying to manage a creative culture and to let people uh, uh, do what we think they can do. Um, and, but part of that is, that is the recognition of chance in our lives. And now we all know it, but there's this feeling that a lot of people have that, that, um, if we, that hindsight is 2020. I mean, it's, a, it's a common phrase, except that it is not true. It isn't even close to being true. And our ability to figure out actually what contributed to our present is no better than our ability to predict the, to predict the future. We can predict some things in the future. We some, see some things in the past. But actually, 
the, the things that we are aware of form our patterns about what's true, about what's true. and frequently they're just wrong, they're shallow, and they can read us in, in the wrong direction. And by understanding and appreciating the random events, um, then I, I think what I can do is make us a little more humble about the, the vagaries of life and be more open to them. So the, the example, and, and the, actually there are, there are a bunch of them that have happened uh, in our history, but one of them had to do with somebody, uh, it's not an, a Unix system, where all of our database for the movie was stored, uh, was removing a file, and he was do, uh, or a set of files, and he was doing it in the wrong directory. He was doing it in the root directory of the entire movie. So all of a sudden, all the assets were deleted from the film as people are panically are in panic trying to figure out what was going on. So within a few minutes, 90% of the movie was gone. So now this can happen. You know, we've all deleted files. So <laughs> we don't usually delete entire movies, but you know, this can happen. So this is the reason you do backups. So you go to the backup. The way we discover this, an, an accident, we didn't realize this, but they had stopped functioning a month ago. We had no backups. So now we're screwed. Um, but our supervising technical director, it turns out, had just had a baby. And in order to work from home, she copied the entire movie onto her computer, took it home, worked from home, and then now was back at work again and had kind of forgot about it until this event came up. And then she said, oh, wait a minute. I, I think I've got this on my computer at home. So they drive over to Marin, wrap it up in blankets, and drive very carefully back <laughs> over the bridge <laughs> to restore the movie. And you know, I look at it and say, well, the consequences would have been disastrous. Um, as it turns out, we were okay with it, but they're the kinds of things that happen. And we, you know, she may not have had a version home, in which case, bad things would have happened. <laughs> but it's just the nature of things that they happen and you know, sometimes you're okay with them and sometimes they're inc incredibly fortuitous. Mm. I can think of a lot of things that went our way. Most people don't even know about them. Mm. And if they wouldn't have happened, then there would be no Pixar. And very few people are aware of those things. Absolutely. Always back up your backups, folks. Um, yes, please. So Henry, sorry, Henry Selleck um, said about CG animation, and I, I don't personally agree with this, but he said a lot of it is beginning to look very homogenous. Um, so I was wondering what your thoughts are on that, and also about whether um, hand-drawn animation is going to return to Disney. Well, um, first of all, on, on computer graphics itself, uh, initially it was very crude. <clears throat> and then uh, for those of us in the field, and there's a whole academic field uh, across the world that participates uh, in trying to solve the problem. We use reality as the benchmark. Um, and then we reach the point where actually things look pretty darn real on there, and sometimes it's hard to tell. And actually, usually it's hard to tell <laughs> nowadays. <laughs> um, but then there was the notion of, okay, how do you actually get to things which are, look, that are beautiful but not real, they're artistic. So up is an example of where it's not photoreal, it's not hand-drawn, it's got the artistic sensibility of that, of Pete and that crew. 
And this field continues to change. And, and if you look at computer or technology and animation and so forth, the hardware keeps changing, the underlying software keeps changing, and the experience base in this field keeps changing. So there's nothing about this which is stable. So you will continue to see changes, and we want that to happen. We want it, them to, to be able to push off in new artistic directions. Um, so we, we will do that. So I don't think it's a, a homogeneous, but on the other hand, uh, it's clear that sometimes <coughs> the, the effects are <coughs> not used wisely, or they're a distraction, like more attention is put on the effects than they are on the story. But that's actually not anything about the effects themselves. That has to do with the discipline of the director in putting the energy in the right place. And they either do it or they don't do it. And with a hand-drawn animation at Disney, is that going well, to be a return? What we did is, is hand-drawn animation had been shut down at Disney. So we brought it back. Um, and we, we made Princess and the Frog. And it was really an incredible experience. Um, uh, and the film did okay, it was critically very well reviewed, but um, for reasons which I won't go into here, it was released five days before Avatar. And the, the consequence of that was that people saw the name uh, Disney Princess and the Frog and they said, oh, this is for little girls only. So it was put into a bucket. And because of the incredible buzz around Avatar, nobody revisited their preconception of what it was. And, and we couldn't break through that. Um, and it was the reason we changed the name of, of Rapunzel to Tangled, was we wanted to give the film a chance to stand on its own without people putting it into a pre preconceived bucket. So uh, we were very proud of the fact that we brought it back, and the artistic level of that was as good as it ever has been done at Disney. The problem we found afterwards was that, that basically, with the exception of um, uh, two of the directors, all the other directors wanted to do 3D animation. And our, the, the rule we came in with was that we have to let the studio be led by the art artistic sensibility at both studios. So we did not say to Disney, you are a 2D studio and, and Pixar's 3D. We didn't say to Disney, you do princess films and Pixar does these kinds of films. We said to each, basically you've got to you have to follow your artistic sensibilities, that it would be wrong for us to try to impose that. And it was actually their movement over into it which said that, the, that, that we couldn't keep that full pipeline going. We have a lot of those people there. Um, we still do some things. I mean, you saw that Mickey, the Get a Horse short. Uh, we had a combination with Paper, um, with Paper Man. So we love that. And there's a diversity at Disney, which is a, 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 there's a greater diversity at Disney than at Pixar because of this uh, hand-drawn component that they have. Um, but I would say that the two groups, which are now very strong, have very different personalities. And we've achieved the personalities by, by letting them develop in their own way and by not trying to define what they are or what they aren't. So that was actually the, 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 the story behind that. Our hope was that more people would pick it up and keep it going, but, uh, but to hold true to the spirit of what we're saying, we had to let them make the choice.
Okay, we got time for one last question. There's a lady right here in the front row. In computer animated films, you have very, very technical people like uh, graphics programmers who are you know, often very technical and you have artistic people like um, animators. And how do you bridge that gap and manage the interactions between those two groups of people and get them to work together and communicate together? Well, part of a group having ownership is, is we work hard to make sure that they all feel us. So we have, like the finance group that's part of the team feels ownership in the protecting of the film. So there, and there, there are a number of things we're doing to make sure that it's, the ownership is spread ac across it. The, the other thing we recognize is that there are certain people who specialize, but there are a lot of people who are fairly diverse. That is, they're trained technically, but they've got good eyes for lighting or for layout or for using the tools. So if, if you were to ask the question, how many people are artists and how many are technical, right? There is no line. There is a continuum. And people fit anywhere on that continuum. So the question actually no longer has meaning to us in terms of how they're even divided up. And, uh, and I think that's a good thing. It's, it's like a lot of companies, you say, well, it's a technical world, so you should bring in more technology people. But they're like this isolated group that's separated from everybody else. Whereas the, the, the better answer is, that the technology and the use of it is integrated into every part of our company. There are no clear boundaries between them. And, and for me, that's a healthier way to think about it because it more reflects the reality of our society. Fantastic. And on that note, that's all the time we have, I'm afraid. Uh, thank you so much for coming. Thanks for your questions. And thank you, of course, to Ed Catmull. Thank you. Thank you.